Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from the battlefront, look at the Russian shelling in Kharkiv, and analyse the latest worrying news from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 18th of August, day 176, and today I'm joined by The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva, and senior reporter, Daniel Kapura. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. A couple of things to note here. So shelling over the last couple of days in Kharkiv, that's just the Ukraine's second city to the northeast of the country, it's left seven dead, 30 wounded, um, hit a, a residential block last night, um, which accounted for, I think, six of the dead. Um, no, no military advantage there, No, seemingly no point to it. Russia has been pushed out of Kharkiv a few months ago, actually, pushed out largely out of largely out of artillery range, not completely as we've seen here, but have been able to affect no no major breakthrough or, or threaten no major breakthrough there. Equally, Ukraine haven't been able to push past what 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 crust is left of the Russian front line up there, so they've not been able to properly get at those supply lines coming down from Russia into the Donbass. But it's been a largely static front line, um, so Russia chucking shells around now. Serves absolutely no purpose whatsoever. I mean, what what is the point of this? If you're just if you're just using your military kit without any thought or without any greater plan, then you're just you've got to ask what what is, what is the significance of it. So just hold that thought for a second. Also, there's been reports today of uh, from Finland that two or three MiG thirty one um, very, you know, super fast interceptor aircraft, Russian MiG-31s, violated its airspace, Finnish airspace, and separately but possibly connected, probably connected, the Russian Ministry of Defence said that, that they had moved uh, a couple of MiG-31s equipped with Kinshell hypersonic missiles to Kaliningrad. So, I mean, what what's Russia trying to do here? I mean, they are... They're moving some fighters around, very old fighters built in the early 80s. I mean, it's still very fast, but they, they go in very fast in a very straight line. And uh, they've got some missiles. Yeah, great. Nice. Well done, fellas. Thanks for turning up. Um, I mean, what what do they do? They, they infringe a bit of 
Finnish airspace. I mean, yeah, Finland's not so stupid that they're going to immediately you know, launch the interceptors and shoot them down. I mean, this is this is just playground stuff. So you match that with with this senseless shelling and the killing in in Kharkiv, and it says to me that they're doing all that they can. They can't push back in the south. They are, uh, by the sounds of it, it, not moving forward in the south. It sounds like their command headquarters have had to move to the south of the Dnipro River. Um, in the Donbass, there are okay, a few a few meters advantage there, hundreds of meters each each week. I mean, it's not it's not what they should be doing. They should be doing much more than that. So Russia's not able to do anything. Uh, um, Alexei Arestovich, President Zelensky's advisor, says there is strategic stalemate. Sorry, strategic deadlock at the moment. I think that's a fairly accurate description. And all that's happening here is that we, I think, we're seeing a shaping phase from Ukraine for any potential counteroffensive in the south and Russia have got no response they cannot reply so we see the senseless shelling in Kharkiv the the reports of move, moving some fighters around to Kaliningrad I mean great it just does nothing it's all they're able to do they're not able to knit together any coherent plan I don't think they've, they've got any ideas they've never had any fresh ideas they're still they're still grinding away in the very old Soviet era doctrine of just pounding with artillery and then moving in later to stick a flag on the rubble so they're not they're not doing anything. They are not affecting any any great military breakthrough or or plan. They are just doing what they can, which is senseless shelling with with with, with no purpose to it, and moving some kid around, announcing they've moved some aircraft about. So, you know, I, I think it's it's quite telling what what we are seeing out of um, out of Russia and 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 the, their actions in the uh, on the battlefield in the last twenty four hours. I'll take a pause there. Thanks, Tom. Just very quickly, you mentioned um, the hypersonic missiles. Could you just uh, refresh our memories, refresh our audience's memories as well as what exactly these are and how worried should the West be about them? So hypersonic, which is generally taken to be above Mach 5, which depending on on, on the height it's operating at, but you know, you're, you're talking, um, I'm going to get my maths wrong here, please DM me and let me know, but I think you're looking at about 2,500 miles an hour. Anyway, Mach 5. All depends on the height for the air pressure and so on and so forth. I've, I've got that completely wrong, so please, uh, to, please, please educate me on that one. But you know, a very, very fast missile. So, so the way to get through air defences, uh, it, it's thought these days and in in the near future, will be firstly to go exceptionally fast. So you just you just simply can't intercept uh, the the missile. And secondly, these uh, hypersonic glide missiles don't they're not just um, they don't just follow a, a physical parabola they don't just go up in the air and then and and then physics sort of determines where they land so these things can come down very low and then can can maneuver so they can uh even if you do pick them up it's very difficult to tell where they're going to go and secondly you're you're probably going to pick them up very late because if you think about the curvature of the earth where you've got your your long range um sensors such as filing dales up in yorkshire here in the uk but these big radars looking out into space because of the curvature of the earth you are not going to see missiles that are very low until they are very close to you and hence you've got even less time to react so instead of just firing ballistic missiles up in space and they, and they come down uh, with with almost no guidance a little bit of guidance but but not an awful lot it's largely physics that determines where they're going to land hypersonic glide vehicles hypersonic glide missiles 
hypersonic missiles are uh, designed to be very low so you see them very late and and have the ability to maneuver and then even if you do see them they're going so fast that uh, they just have the sheer kinetic energy to, to probably outrun any any missile coming at it um, and not only the, the warhead but the, the sheer speed that it's going the the, the energy that would impart just uh, adds to the uh, to the resultant uh, blast when it gets to the target so they, i mean they are they are a very potent force. Uh, China have been have been developing them as well. I think the DF twelve, I think that's the name of it, or DF five. Anyway, DF something. China uh, developing hypersonic missiles, as are the West, uh, UK, and primarily the US. But it is an emerging area of military technology. Uh, um, one to one to look out for. It seems to be the way of things. You know, f- fighters are very good, but they're they're, they're quite big and, and relatively slow. So it's thought that you want the fighter to stay well out of the way of engagement and just launch these missiles from afar so they can travel vast distances at great speed. Or if you're going to get up close and personal with a fighter, you need um, great stealth technology like in the F-35, F-22, something like this. So you can you can operate with inside um, a Russian, or oh, sorry, an enemy's MEZ missile engagement zone. So you, you, you are, you're not seen. You have a very low radar cross-section. So a, a radar operator would, would not see your aircraft there. You, you have either no radar cross-section or you just, it, it comes across as a, you know, a sort of flock of birds or something, something much smaller than it, than it would, um, it is in real life. Um, so yeah, stealth or stay well away and, and use uh, long-range, very fast missiles seems to be the, the next sort of turn of the wheel in, in air and air defences. Thanks very much, Tom. I think we all needed that, so that was incredibly comprehensive. Uh, Natalia Vasilyeva, can I come to you? Uh, a top advisor to Volodymyr Zelensky has said that Ukraine should stop, uh, quote, cancelling Russian people and instead try to uh, peel them away from the regime. Can you tell us about this story? What did he mean by that? Yes, I think it's quite a no- noteworthy comment from Alexei Istovich, who is, of course, one of Zelensky's top advisors and who has quite an online following of his own thanks to his daily briefings and often viral social media content. Now, his comments um, came after a couple of weeks of quite intense discussions within the EU and Ukraine about uh, pushing ahead sanctions that would target ordinary Russians, as obviously Europe is running out of tools to influence Putin. And one of them would be to bar Russians from visiting EU or, for example, bar Russians from acquiring tourist visas, which are essentially not just visas for tourists, but any short-term visit. Um, now, Alexei Restovich published a quite a lengthy statement um, uh, yesterday morning. Um, he didn't name any of um, his political opponents in Ukraine. He's just mentioned that a lot of his compatriots, compatriots um, went overboard with um, criticizing and vilifying Russians, quite understandably, after what we saw in Bucha and across eastern and central Ukraine and um, other parts under Russian occupation. Um, the point that Arestovich made was that um, uh, those calls to isolate Russians completely, to strip them of all visas, send them back to Russia, is not going to bring down Vladimir Putin's regime, but uh, will basically push them into the embrace of the propaganda. And uh, to... Aristovich, Ukraine should actually be more strategic about using, as he put it, as they put it, good Russians as a resource, as something that could bring about change, as something that could um, um, 
help Ukraine dealing with Russia years from now. Instead of that, he, he sounded quite frustrated with what we see as a common opinion about um, uh, basically targeting, um, targeting the entire nation. Well, thank you very much for that, Natalia. Natalia, you've also been um, looking at some of the uh, economic implications of the sanctions on on Russia. You wrote a really interesting piece about you, about about a Russian car factory uh, in, in in the West. Can you tell us about that? What's what's happening there for for ordinary Russians uh, in the West? There. Yeah, I was I was very lucky. I could speak to um, a couple of car factory workers and uh, trade union activists last week. Um, as uh, you might know the car industry is the one is the single industry single russian industry that has been most affected by the western sanctions since um almost every single car factory in russia is foreign owned or um has operated in some kind of partnership with foreign car makers there's no domestic industry per, per se they might be an actual factory in place but all of the com- components all of the expertise uh, is outsourced, and that's a business that cannot exist in isolation, uh, which is something that Vladimir Putin is now trying to do. Um, and what we have seen since the war started was at least 10 foreign car-owned factories suspending their operations. Um, one of them shut down permanently. The other one, the, the others have been suspended since. Um, and as a result of that, we have... Um, Tens of thousands of workers who um, have been furloughed, who are not, who are receiving some pay, typically two thirds of what they generally make, but that industry completely ground to a halt. And what was the uh, the the what, what's the morale like of, of the people you, you speak to? How do they, how are, how are they thinking of the war? I mean, I know in your article they were very careful about how they talked about it. Yeah, people people are increasingly um, cautious about how they talk about the war, even about the choice of wars, because as we know, there's a law in place in Russia that criminalizes the very use of the word war. If you use the word, you might as well be facing time in prison. So there's this one manager at the Volkswagen factory that I spoke, he was very careful not to use the word. He um, He's a quite young man, he's in his early 30s, and he basically spent um, most of his, or almost all of his professional life at this factory. And um, on an emotional level, you know, he was very upset about what happened, but he's also, um, he's quite clear about why this happened. And, you know, he doesn't blame the, uh, he doesn't blame his employer. He, he understands why it happens. But a lot of people like him are out of jobs and their skills and qualifications are basically not needed. Um, uh, there are stories of people, you know, getting depressed or sort of like, um, wait, you know, bidding their time because they're still paid. Um, one of the managers I spoke to, he, he was able to, he sort of decided that, um, you know, he has to do something new. He quickly um, um, found a small business to work with um, and he's doing fine. But, but but generally he says, you know, people are obviously very upset because as, as he put it, you know, the life they had, it no longer exists and it no longer will. You've obviously been following events in Russia and people in Russia for the past few months. We're coming up. We're coming up now to six months of of the invasion. H- how have you seen views um, change o- over that time? Is, is there anything that should give um, people elsewhere uh, hope for the, for the future that there might be some challenge to Vladimir Putin's regime? I mean, how how do you see ordinary Russians thinking of this? 
obviously what we saw in the initial days and weeks of the war, uh, there was this overwhelming, and I, I've written about it, there was this overwhelming feeling of shock, grief, disbelief at what happened because a war, a full-scale war with Ukraine was something completely unimaginable. And it took everyone in Russia, I guess, except for the five decision makers who actually made the decision completely by surprise. It took everyone by surprise. Um, uh, we saw uh, protest rally. We saw an initial um, um, outpouring of public rage and dissent, which was quite quickly quashed by uh, draconian censorship laws which have sent and are sending people to jail as we speak. So obviously there's very um, little protest on the ground. Um, every time I, I speak to somebody new in Russia and I, I, I call people um, every day, every week, I see that people are being more and more cautious about um, um, being open about uh, what they think about the war, even if we agree that I'm not using their last name. Um, uh, obviously there was an expectation when the war started that yes it is horrific and unimaginable but everyone hoped that it would be over soon and soon would mean days weeks I don't think anyone could quite see that it would take six months and now as you said we're we're very close to six months um, from from what I what I can gather is uh, there is a there's a growing feeling of um of fatigue with the war, but also uh, people are trying to get on with their lives. They're trying to uh, get adjusted to the new economic reality, realities um, as well, to the growing isolation. Um, and also, it's, I think it's important to say that this is still summertime in Russia. So um, sometimes when I speak to people or I go on Instagram and I see Instagram stories from Moscow about people partying and you know drinking rosé at summer terraces, you get this, you know, happy-go-lucky feeling. And um, a lot of people have just been enjoying their summer, trying to push the war from their minds as far as possible. Obviously, that's not going to, um, you know, they're not going to be able to do it forever um, for various reasons because uh, the uh, consensus opinion of uh, um, experts and economists uh, shows us that um, the real, uh, the most tangible effect of the Western sanctions, um, Russians are, go are going to feel it um, starting September, October, you know, just, just not now. So I guess right, right now, everyone is just going about their lives and like not trying to think about what's, uh, what's going to happen very soon. Thanks, Natalia. Uh, Dom, I know you have a couple of questions. Yeah, I do. Hi, Natalia. Great to hear from you again. A couple of questions, please. Um, slightly disconnected, I think. Firstly, if, what reaction have you seen from Russia on social media channels or, or people you're speaking to about the recent events in Crimea? Just wonder how that's landed inside Russia. And separately, you're, uh, you're speaking to us from Istanbul. Just just keen to hear the, the view there of um, President Erdogan's position and, and Turkey's position more broadly in the, in the war so far, their pivotal role in the uh, the grain uh, efforts to get the grain out. And um, I think they're going to be visited uh, tomorrow by UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. So, so I mean, the, Turkey really is on the diplomatic front right right in the middle of this. So I'd be very interested to see how how uh, how that's viewed from inside Turkey. Yeah, hi, hi Dom, and, and, and thanks for these. Um, on Crimea, um, uh, definitely what we saw this week and, and especially last week when the first when we saw the first explosion in Crimea, there was an overwhelming feeling of shock 
because despite the fact that Crimea is literally on the doorstep of a war, it has been a holiday destination. Um, you know, friends of friends I know in Russia, they actually went on holiday in Crimea, which I found um, impossible to believe, but people people do, people have. Um, obviously, the explosions were uh, taken with a, with, a, with a lot of a shock. Um, I've been I've been recently going through. Uh, social media to see what sort of holiday makers who are making reservations think like are, are they trying to cancel all the bookings and it's funny to see that you know yes they have been cancellation and I'm speaking to people in the tourism industry but um, the overwhelming sense of panic that we saw in those videos of people running away from uh, from the beach with the um, clouds of smoke towering over them it's it's not quite representative there's still a feeling that uh, Russia has a strong army that that can defend its own people. That you know, it happened on one airfield. That that's what I keep hearing. That you know, this was just one accident. Okay, maybe another explosion happened. So here we have this unexplained fatalistic uh, Russian attitude kick in. Um, I I know that people have been canceling holidays, um, and uh, acquaintances of mine, the tourism industry, have reported you know quite quite a bit of cancellations um, for the coming months. Um, but it's not, I mean, it, it, it's not quite the situation that Ukrainians would like to see that, you know, everyone is going to evacuate the peninsula. Um, I think it's also important to say that the explosions were, um, Russia's, Russia's hardliners on the war. They have taken those explosions quite painfully. And for a lot of them, it showed, um, um, it showed this gapping, um, um, it showed this stunning failure by by, by um, the Russian Defense Ministry to defend what they think is Russian territory. Because in the past years, we have seen um, we have seen constant reports about defenses of Crimea being shored up, about S three hundred, S four hundred. Um, missile defense system being brought in, creating the you know Russian version of the Israeli Iron Dome. But as we saw with those attacks, um, apparently it, they proved um, proved quite quite useless. Um, so I think there's not quite. I mean, the panic with what we saw on social media, it's not quite happening on a large scale yet. Um, and to take on your second question about Turkey, um, you're absolutely right. President Erdogan has taken quite an active role in mediating between uh, Russia and Putin. Uh, he is in a perfect position to do so. Because um, uh, he does have uh, long-standing ties with Putin, and he has been able to find common ground with him, even in places like Syria, where Turkey and Russia have been backing uh, opposing sides. Essentially, um, they do have long-standing ties. On the other hand, uh, Turkey never recognized the annexation of Crimea. Turkey has been very supportive of uh, Crimean Tatars, the indigenous people of Crimea. Um, Erdogan personally intervened, uh, I forgot the year, something like three or four years ago to uh, get local Crimean leaders out of prison who somehow were pardoned and flew, flew flown to Turkey. And... Um, uh, the Kremlin never properly commented on explain how that happened, but Erdogan was able to use his way. But now we're in a position when Putin has been saying he doesn't want to talk. Um, his uh, stated goals for invasion keep changing every week. One day he 
uh, he calls Zelensky a legitimate leader and he says that, yes, we're, we can talk to the Ukrainian government. But literally a week later, he talks about Zelensky as someone who um, seized power by force and whose predecessors um, uh, were elevated to power thanks to a coup. So it's, it's going to be quite a tall order for Erdogan to try and get Putin to talk to Zelensky. Um, obviously, um, he already has um, some achievements to boast, including the grain deal, the deal to unseal um, Ukrainian grain exports from uh, Ukrainian ports. Um, so it's something to, to build on. Um, I would say that you know his, his, his visit to Ukraine does sound like something um, as, as an attempt to test waters and, and see what, what Zelensky might be feeling like. Um, Erdogan hasn't visited Ukraine uh, since the war started, unlike other world leaders. And he was recently in Sochi. So um, it's, it's quite possible that, it, that this, is, um, this is all about testing waters at this point, not something um, concrete. And just very briefly, because I know uh, we need to move on, but just very briefly, your reading of President Erdogan, do you think he would be happy with the diplomatic win of getting the grain issue moving on and he'll sort of push back from the table at that point and, and take the kudos? Or or does he does he want more? Does he want to be seen as the peace broker here? Uh, does he need that for, for his own standing? Or do, do you think he's already got enough of a win out of this so far that he's not he's not going to take a, a, a massively active role uh, from here here on here on in um i totally think that for someone like erdogan one win is not enough um uh, the grain deal was um heavily covered by by, by state and um sort of state friendly media here in turkey um uh, i think it's important to to say that turkey is going through a very tough economic time that uh turkish inflation um is highest in europe highest on the continent i'm not sure but definitely highest in europe i think the most recent figure is 90 percent uh, 90% year on year. So uh, there's quite a lot of... Um, he's facing... Um, uh, he's facing... facing at home and he's facing um, uh, an election next year. So he would definitely want to... Uh, he would want to, a big prize. Uh, the grain deal was enough, but he would totally uh, be, up, be up for a big prize, I would say. Thank you very much, Natalia. And thank you, Don, for those questions. Just one more from me before we move on. Um Earlier, Natalia, you said that lots of Russians seem to be trying to ignore what's happening. They just sort of they're partying in Moscow, trying to they're hoping that it'll be over soon. Do in in your view, do you think ordinary Russians have any sense of responsibility for what's happened, or do they try and push that away? That's a really tough question, actually. That's 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 an incredibly tough question, and you know we can talk about it for hours about the demographic and how split Russia is right now, and how fragmented the society has been for years. Um, I, I can just say that you know there's a there's a small vocal majority that uh, sorry there's a small vocal minority that has been outraged, that has been protested, that um, has found different ways to protest. Some people have expressed their um, dissatisfaction and disagreement with the government by simply leaving. Um, I think a lot of those people um, do feel responsible in a way for what happened. But also those are overwhelming people who were in the streets in 2011, 2012. They were there in big numbers and they protested and they saw that nothing really happened. Um, But what we can see right now is the majority of Russians, they... 
they would prefer to believe what they've been told on TV because the truth obviously is too horrible to imagine that your country, that your army um, in your name is engaged in uh, the atrocious crimes that we all know about. So I don't think we can talk about any responsibility among that, um, among the majority of Russians at this point. Well, thank you very much, Natalia, for that. Um, one of the big things we wanted to talk about today is events in the south at the uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Uh, we've got Dan Kapuro here, our history correspondent, just to give us some context uh, and just to talk a little bit about um, what happened the last time there was a nuclear meltdown in Europe. But first, can I just hear from Dom and Natalia, what, what are the latest updates from Zaporizhia? What's been, what's been happening in the south? Well, there's still reports, mainly from Russia, that Ukraine is shelling the area. Um, Ukraine deny that. They say they would not be so reckless as to shell the nuclear power plant. I mean, there's also we've also had Dmitry Peskov, the um, Kremlin spokesman or the Ministry of Defence, Russia's Ministry of Defence spokesman, saying that they're expecting uh, a, a, an egregious act in the next few days by Ukraine. Which you know we don't like this kind of language. This is, I, I mean, I, I personally don't believe it, um, and I think if if there is something there, this is possibly lining up for a false flag. So this kind of rhetoric is is not good. Now, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is in town. President Zelensky in recent days has been has been pushing the the idea of we need to have some resolution over the nuclear power plant. So it it is coming to a bit of a head. I think Russia quite like that. They like sort of adding to this this idea that it's all becoming a bit of a crisis because they can be the peacemakers here. Now, I mean you would have heard Francis speaking uh, in recent days about his fears. I'm, I'm just careful with my words here because I can see him lurking in the back of the space, back of the pod. Um, but he's he's very nervous that if, if and he's rightly so, I think, uh, nervous that, that Putin suddenly in his in his sort of you know, magnanimous nature comes out and says, tell you what, let's have a ceasefire because the war's not going well for him. He says, let's, let's have a ceasefire. We need to bring order and, and calm to this situation, especially when there's nuclear power involved. Um, as Francis says, there there could well be a lot of external actors here um, international, amongst the international community who will grasp at that and who will say yes we need we need to do that and that could be the thin end of a wedge the wedge being a very poor peace settlement for ukraine so not surprisingly i think russia are, are trying to make a, as big a deal as they can out of the nuclear issue here at zaporizhia and i'm not saying there is no there is no issue there at all because there is there are military forces in the area. There are. Um, I, I happen to believe you, you might take a different view, but I happen to believe that Russia is firing from that area at at Ukraine, so using it as some sort of uh, using using the shield of the the plant um, to know that Ukraine will not fire back. So it is a very serious issue. It does seem to be coming to a head, and there are some quite quite worrying comments coming out of the Kremlin. I think one of the questions that lingers is like, why is Russia doing it? Why would anyone want to provoke a nuclear catastrophe, which will affect the whole Europe, the whole world, essentially? Um, and this just brings us back to what I've been talking about uh, in terms of the grain deal between Russia and Turkey, which is another classic. I think with the Zaporizhia power station, we have another classic example of um uh, Putin tactics, where he creates a crisis completely out of nowhere, uh, that the crisis that shouldn't have been there in the first place, and then he is driving everyone into a state of frenzy and gets people to come, you know, come to him and offer him a solution. And um, in the end, you know, what we saw with the grain deal uh, between Russia and Ukraine, mediated by Turkey, 
in um, uh, Russian state media, it was portrayed as a major victory of Russia. It was portrayed as something that, you know, Russia brought to the world. Russia has alleviated this food crisis. But essentially, there was not supposed to be any food crisis to start with. And I think we're, we're facing a, a, quite a similar situation with the power, with the nuclear power plant now. Because there was not supposed to be any nuclear crisis. And um, Putin is using just the same tactics here, I think. Thank you very much, Dom. Thank you, Natalia. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for waiting. Can you give us some historical context and just talk to us a little bit about, uh, well, I mean, this, this isn't a cheery subject at all, but wh- why should we be so worried about what's happening in Zaporizhia? Absolutely. No, thanks for thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting in that you have this sort of uh, historical precedent and obviously the fact that this war is happening in Ukraine, which is um, alongside Belarus, uh, the country most scarred um, by um, nuclear by a nuclear disaster, um, Chernobyl in 1986. Um, but you've got two things going on, really. One, which is this this sort of what's precedented and what we can look back at and, and say... Um, say that we know might happen but then you've got stuff that is totally unprecedented and that we really haven't seen before so so some of that context comes from from beyond ukraine um so looking at, at chernobyl there without giving sort of a, a seminar on, on nuclear physics um basically you had a, a badly designed reactor uh built within the constraints of the soviet um industrial system and you know really some of it was fairly basic stuff like not being able to do highly technical welding um, to create um, the right kind of containment chamber. So uh, you didn't have a pressurized water reactor um, um, in Chernobyl. And it was an inherently sort of unstable um, design, an unsafe design that was never copied or used in the West. Um, But the actual incident in 1986, um, there's some context that that we'll touch on later because that relates to to, um, fighting around nuclear plants. But basically there was a decision to run a test um, at Chernobyl um, which involved shutting down a lot of the um, safety systems because they had to force the reactor to be in an unsafe state to run this test. Um, and the question they were trying to answer was, in that minute where the um, power is cut to the power station uh, that provides cooling, that provides electricity for the pumps, for the water that cools the reactor, um, there's a delay of about a minute for the diesel generators to kick in and get those pumps going again. So in that minute, could the reactor sort of self-cool? Uh, could the steam from the reactor um, power those um, power the turbines, power the pumps, and, and sort of cool itself? Um, it was an incredibly reckless experiment. Um, a lot of the scientists and engineers there were not uh, qualified to do it. Um, they didn't really have kind of the sophisticated sensors, the understanding of what was going on in the reactor. Um, the chief engineer, Dyatlov, who many people will know from the from the uh, Sky HBO program, um, ignored a lot of uh, safety precautions. Um, and basically, they pushed the reactor too far. Um, the key factor was this, because of the design, um, steam bubbles basically increased uh, the rate of reaction, whereas in Western designs they don't, um, and they pushed it too far, and then when they slammed on the emergency shutdown, it triggered a massive explosion, um, which blasted uh, nuclear material, bits of the reactor everywhere, um, huge fallout, and then of course, famously, there's a sort of the cover-up, uh, the refusal to pass the information up the chain, the kind of the classic of this sort of the um, the Soviet the communist system of, of not upsetting your boss, not passing on uh, the truth, um, the kind of the famous example of this is that the uh, the radiation 
um, meters that they used only went up to 3.5, which was the safe level. And so they said, oh, it's fine. It's only up to 3.5 when actually it was sort of 1500. Um, and the Soviet Union only admitted the problem after radiation was detected in Sweden. Um, and, you know, that story is sort of reasonably well known. And then you have this enormous um, effort of manpower to, to clear it up. Um, but, you know, the key there is basically that uh, you had poor engineering, um, poor communication, poor management and an unsafe system um, that just went totally wrong. Um, we can go into the political consequences in, in, in just a moment, I suppose, um, because they are really important for Ukrainian independence and, and Ukrainian history and, and self-identity. Um, what's going on at Zaporizhia is very different. Um, it's not um, this, uh, this design of, re of um, reactor that you had in Chernobyl. Uh, it's more like a, a Western system. It is a um, pressurized water reactor. Um, it has, because it's smaller and more compact, it has a large, very thick um, concrete containment uh, system around it, uh, which the Chernobyl system did not. Um, these uh, containment, these concrete containment vessels are, are really substantial. They're designed to be able to resist being hit by um, a jet, basically, by a plane crashing into them. Um, the new scientist, uh, I think a couple of days ago, had a report from um, an unnamed uh, nuclear scientist in Ukraine saying, yes, uh, you know, our containment vessels are designed to withstand terrorists. But the key caveat he, he mentioned was that they're not designed to withstand um, attacks, you know, by artillery, by rockets, by these kind of things. And this really is, is, is the big unknown, is that uh, the, the Zaporizhia system is a relatively safe one. It has lots of uh, safeguards in place. Uh, there were updates done to it after Fukushima to make it even safer. So it should, in normal circumstances, whether it's a tsunami or an earthquake, as, as unlikely as those are in uh, Ukraine, not be a problem. Um, but, of course, people don't design nuclear reactors to be bombed um, and fired at. Um, and here, really, we're, we're talking about something unprecedented. So um, there's only really been uh, three occasions where uh, nuclear reactors have been bombed, um, mostly involving, well, pretty much all involving Israel. So you had Operation Scorch Sword in, in September of 1980, which was an Iranian uh, mission, but uh, probably um, with Israeli backing, as unlikely as that sounds in, in, in the current era, uh, which bombed an um, Iraqi nuclear reactor uh, that Saddam Hussein was building. Um, but there are a few key caveats there. One was that the um, Iranians were worried about nuclear fallout, and so they deliberately only bombed the um, support buildings, uh, support facilities, not the actual reactor, because they didn't know if it had been fueled yet. Um, and then they later found out that it, had, it hadn't been fueled, so it wasn't filled up. Um, about a year later, in 1981, the Israelis uh, bombed the same facility again, um, this point in time, they did actually bomb the reactor, but again, it hadn't been fueled, and so the, the risk was relatively low. They were condemned hugely at the time, and, and Reagan, in his diary, uh, we later found out, wrote that he genuinely feared um, Armageddon had arrived when, when the Israelis uh, decided to launch this unilateral action. Um, and in 2007, they did again Operation Outside the Box, which was this uh, sort of small facility in Syria. Um, it's still a little unclear what exactly it was, but it seems to have been a small reactor designed to... Um, designed to generate plutonium, again, for a bomb. Um, and in that case, it was sort of not fully active and, again, not fully fueled and uh, hadn't been in operation for very long. So the risk there was relatively low. I mean, still pretty cavalier to turn up with a bunch of F-15s and F-16s and, and, and drop uh, bunker busters on a, on a nuclear reactor. But we've never really seen anything like that before. Um, and that's where the comparison with Chernobyl really comes in, is that it's this explosion thing, right? So with, with Fukushima 
there were worries about hydrogen explosions. There were a couple, but they weren't actually in the reactors themselves. And you still had a big dispersal of, of radioactive material. But what happens if you have a huge um, explosion at a nuclear power plant? Well, we know what happened at Chernobyl, but we don't know what happens when you fire sort of modern or probably in the case of the Russian Air Force, not particularly modern um, missiles at a nuclear reactor. Um, and that really, really is the unknown. Um, now, it may seem unlikely that anyone would actually do that, um, but there is a secondary risk, and this is one that we saw in March, uh, which also applies to former nuclear power plants, so this was the worry in Chernobyl, is that even when they're shut down, they need cooling. Uh, they need electricity to pump water around the spent fuel to keep it cool, to stop it reaching criticality and, and you having a very big problem. Um, now, at uh, Chernobyl and in Zaporizhia and in other plants, um, they have lots of backup systems, but the question is, if the electricity was cut as it seemed to have been briefly in March in, in Chernobyl and possibly Zaporizhia, uh, how long can those backup systems last for? Uh, how long will the power be cut for? And what happens when that power uh, runs out? And that's the other kind of scary issue. That's what you, you had at Fukushima, which was that the, uh, the diesel generators were all swamped by the tsunami and didn't run for, for several days. And you had this buildup of, of, of pressure, of steam, of hydrogen, of, of, of radiation. Um, that's really the other, the other major risk. Um, if these... Uh, if this power plant becomes effectively a battlefield, even if people do their best not to shoot at the actual reactor itself or even its, its uh, cooling systems, uh, what happens if the power's cut? Well, thank you very much, Dan, for that context and that history. Um, Tom, can I just come to you quickly? From everything that Dan said, you know, obviously you're um, formerly in the military. What, how does this make you feel? What, what, do, do you think the Russian military have a sense of, of, the, of the, the danger they're putting the entirety of Europe in? I mean, I was speaking to... So we had Hamish de Burton-Gordon on last week, didn't we? Hamish de Burton-Gordon, when he was in the British Army, he commanded the Joint um, NBC, uh, joint uh, NBC Regiment, or CBRN, Chemical, Biological, Radiological and Nuclear uh, Regiment in the in the British military. And he's, he's, been on, he's gone on since to, uh, to forge a career as a, as a world expert in this area, uh, which is why we had him on. And I, I chatted, obviously chatted to him last week. I also spoke to a chap who was his... Uh, who was his Basically, his, his uh, 2IC, his second in command over that time, and uh, and Jim, his, uh, this, the guy I was speaking to, he was very clear. He said that in our doctrine, in Western doctrine, CBRN, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear uh, tactics and thinking, is all about defensive. How do you how do you operate in in that area rather than how do you use it as an offensive capability in its own right? And he said, Russian doctrine, Soviet doctrine before that was very much the other way around it was looking at how you can use it as an offensive capability as well as defensive as well as operating within that kind of environment um that dirty environment so they are very well versed in in thinking not not doing necessarily but in thinking which is half the half the battle in thinking about how to use this in an offensive capability not just in literally as a as a weapon uh, either either nu nuclear weapon, chemical weapon, etc., or in radiological terms, here to engineer an accident and, and have a have a plume that uh, that would, uh, as Dan says, go across Europe and cause absolute absolute catastrophe like Chernobyl. But also how to think about how far you push the diplomacy. And Jim was saying that they would have they would have wargamed this. They would have thought about this. They would have looked at our responses to their comments whenever they they raised the spectre of of nuclear weapons. So they would have taken that on board and then planned and thought and wargamed diplomatic manoeuvres to see how, how close they can get to 
to either having their bluff called or an accident, a, 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 you know, a miscalculation by somebody which then spirals out of control, but how to push it just far enough to get what they want before they row back. And as we said earlier on earlier on today, we said that you know, just as just as with the grain, as Natalia said, just as with the grain, we see this engineered catastrophe, this engineered problem to which Putin can come riding to the rescue and say, well, I can sort this all out. I mean, as Natalia said, it's a problem all of his own making. So, yes, they would have war-gamed this. They would have thought about how far they can press it in terms of the, mili- the, the military. So uh, literally how many people can they can they sight there? How often can they get away with firing from those positions before the world does something about it? As well as uh, drum-beating the, the, the rhetoric about nuclear Armageddon and, oh, we think there's going to be a, a, an attack by Ukraine and so on and so forth. So all these things, they're not happening by accident. Arguably, they would have given more thought to this because of the consequences than they have to to any of the, the any of the tactics we've seen in the Donbass, the sort of armoured assault. Um, so, so this is not happening by accident. The trouble is that we're playing for such high stakes. I mean, the, a miscalculation here on either side can have t- tremendous, as a, as in the size of it, tremendously bad consequences. So, yes, they've thought about it probably a lot more than than we have in an offensive in an offensive way but that doesn't mean that they are they are you know, ninja strategic thinkers when it comes to nuclear diplomacy we've seen them make all sorts of mistakes on the battlefield so far i mean number one strategic mistake was invading in the first place so i mean they are not against making some absolute howlers and there's nothing to say that they're not about to do the same here I've got two questions. I'm aware we're starting to run out of time. So just two questions for you all. One is, do we think that the world should be most worried about an accident or a miscalculation? And also, Dan, would you give us a sense of, we've talked about the consequences and we've talked about how, how awful this could be. Could you, could you just talk us through what, what actually might happen? Just, just so we're very clear on, on what the impact would be. Sure. So if we go to that one first, um, I think if it came to some kind of direct strike on the reactor, um, really, we're in uncharted waters. Um, no one knows what happens because ultimately these are very, very sophisticated pieces of engineering with lots and lots of fail-safes. Um, but if you drive a missile through one of them, artillery shells, through all the key components, um, it's not particularly clear how they respond. Um, now, the big fear, obviously, is, is, a, is a complete and total uh, meltdown uh, in which the uh, reactor goes critical. Now we're not talking. We're not talking um, what happens in a in an atomic bomb. It's not what happens if um, if a nuclear power plant, um, even when it explodes. You know, Chernobyl did explode, and it was not like an expo- the explosion at Hiroshima. But you would just have huge, huge amounts of radiation pouring out into the surrounding countryside, the surrounding countries, um, devastation of agriculture. Um, all the kind of animals would have to be culled, livestock. Uh, you wouldn't be able to consume any of the dairy, fruit and veg, um, potentially fish. If you're talking about, um, you know, you could be talking about this. Zaporizhia is on um, is on the Dnieper River, so all of this radioactive water flooding into the Black Sea, potentially into the Mediterranean. So you're talking about very, very high levels of radiation um, spreading everywhere and, and, and sort of devastating um, the vast swathes basically of of um the near east and um europe uh the alternative scenario the one where the power gets cut well 
as I was saying, these are well-engineered systems. They have lots of backups. In that kind of situation, you have this slightly scary, uh, as we did in, in Fukushima and to an extent Three Mile Island, this slightly scary, how much time do we have? Um, can we get in and fix it? Can we restore the power? Uh, will the Russians um, let nuclear engineers in? Are they going to insist on their own engineers? All this kind of horrible, quite scary standoff. The end result is the same, basically, that the reactor overheats that you potentially have build up, for example, of hydrogen that explodes or um, some kind of meltdown of the reactor, um, intense um, build up of gases, um, and again, an explosion that, that then releases huge amounts of radiation. Um, so similar situation, but the build up obviously very, very different um, when it comes to diplomacy and negotiations. Thanks, Dan. I guess my, my, my initial question of what should we be more worried about, a miscalculation or an accident? Um, Dom and Natalia, would you want to take that? And then I think we probably um, I'll have to ask you for your final thoughts. Uh, for me, miscalculation, I don't think there'll be an accident. I don't think Ukraine is daft enough to fire at it, which, which the Russians are banking on. I also don't think the Russians are daft enough to fire directly at the buildings themselves. However, miscalculation, it, it will always... You know, I always veer on the side of cock up, not conspiracy. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very worried that, that that things could get out of hand, and and it might be, as Dan says, it might not be the the plant itself, but the, the somehow the, the electrical power to the plant that is that is hit through miscalculation. Um, that that'd be my big concern. Um, yeah, I think in terms of I echo what what Dom says. I mean, there's a lot of brinkmanship here going on, right? And um, as Dom says, I don't see a world in which the Ukrainians would choose to fire at uh, the nuclear power plant. Um, and it may well be that the uh, battlefront moves um, regardless of, of Zaporizhia and that those Russian forces end up finding themselves um, stuck behind enemy lines and have to surrender or, or, or retreat. Um, but I think, yes, the, the, the issue is, is one of miscalculation and one of the Russians engaging in brinkmanship and, and getting that, that very wrong. Um, I think uh, it would take a real madman to actually um, attack the plant or, you know, commit some kind of false flag attack. Well, thank you, uh, Dom Nichols, Dan Kapira and Natalia Vasilyeva. Um, we didn't mean to scaremonger too much. I hope we haven't. It's just that this seems like such an important issue. I wanted to ask some of the really basic questions about, you know, what actually happens, what's the history here. I thought thought that would be important for, for, for our listeners and, and for, for the podcast. Um so I hope you don't think we've been scaremongering, but we wanted to sort of play through and think about some of the the, the impact of, of what of, of what doing what Russia is doing around this nuclear plant actually has. Um, we've come to the end of our time today. So Dom, Daniel and Natalia, can I just ask for your final thoughts? What should our listeners be thinking of in the next day and next few days? Sure, if I might um, wrap up on the nuclear question. Um, it does look like this is the time when... Uh, Putin would be interested in some sort of a solution along the lines of the grain um, uh, grain deal that we saw. Um, you know, if you look at the map of the hostilities in Ukraine, the front line has been static, essentially static for the past two or three weeks. So obviously for, um, for Putin and the Kremlin domestically, there's not really much to um, show to Russian public that there are no achievements to produce. So, you know, say that he makes a deal with the um, International Atomic Energy Agency um, mediated by Erdogan and something like that. And, you know, it would, and they would package it nicely and 
present to Russia and saying, yes, well, you see, there was this massive, massive crisis that we averted, you know, Russia saved um, Ukraine and the whole world from a nuclear disaster. So that's that definitely because they, I would say because the front line is static, I think it's totally in Putin's interest to uh, come up with something like this right now. For me, it's still on the nuclear issue. Uh, the front line is static. However, there's a lot of movement here in this war diplomatically. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of weapons flowing in. So let's have a look at, at Putin, what, what he wants. He, he likes engineering these crises and he likes being the guy to fix them. Grain, I, I don't know what, what he got for that. Maybe it was the international pressure that made him bow on that. I'm not entirely sure. But this is now this is now arguably much higher stakes. The UN Secretary General is in town. Well, he's in, he's in Lviv today. Um, so he's, he's there looking not only at grain and at the wider war, but he is specifically looking at the nuclear question. So then we might find that there is a, a, you know, a deal, small d deal over the, uh, the, over the nuclear plant and it, a UN inspectors go in and it's a, a demilitarized zone. What would be Putin's price for that? I wonder, I just wonder if in the background right now, conversations are going on about with, with America primarily to stop those weapon supplies. If Russia are saying to America... We will hand over the nuclear power plant to a UN-sponsored force to look after it, demilitarize it. But you stop sending the HIMARS in. I I just wonder if that conversation is happening right now. It'll be interesting to see when the next uh, meeting in the Ramstein process, as in military aid to Ukraine, takes place. Ramstein light, if you like, the the, the British Defence um, Secretary-led effort to for, for military aid training and cash that the, the, we, I was in uh, Denmark last week remember um, the next one of those is due in mid to late September which isn't that far away so we should start hearing noises about that if those are delayed then I will start to get very very suspicious and I'll start asking questions about well I'll ask them anyway is Russia in the background trying to do a deal over the Zaporizhia nuclear plant to get the weapon supplies stopped from the west because that for me right now is a thing that Russia is most scared of I'll be uh, very brief then, David, just on my final thoughts. Um, Just to go back to what you're saying about scaremongering. I mean, yes, I think, you know, the worst case scenario is is a really terrifying one. But I I think there's two key points to make here. One, you know, the comparison between Zaporizhia and Chernobyl is important. Um, This is a much more sophisticated uh, reactor design with far more safety features um, and backups and passive cooling. Um, And we've actually seen, you know, the resilience of modern nuclear power plants here, the fact that they've actually been able to withstand uh, skirmishes and battles on their their property, and there hasn't been a disaster yet. So they are more resilient uh, than um, perhaps people fear. You know, it's not totally a fragile situation. And then the other thing, of course, is that, you know, Chernobyl really was so disastrous, it precipitated the collapse of the Soviet Union in a lot of ways and and Ukrainian independence. And Putin claims to be a a student of history. And and I really don't think that he would uh, look at that history of Chernobyl and think, yes, that's something I want to have happen. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing 
podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.